Thank you all for coming along to this episode of Unplugged in St Kilda. After recording 11 in-studio interviews, we're doing something a little different today. Instead of me asking all the questions, I'll ask our guest a few and then I'll hand the microphone over to you, our lovely audience members, to ask the questions. But firstly, I'd like to give you all a summary of the Unplugged project so far. Our aim for this project was to record the history of music in St Kilda from the 1970s through to the 1990s. Not so much a timeline of what happened and when, but more of a record of the role St Kilda played in the lives and careers of musicians who lived and gigged here. It's a time capsule of sorts where we discover why our suburb attracted so many musicians and how it inspired their creativity. I'd like to list all the musicians we've interviewed and this is just in order of the recordings. Firstly, Fiona Lee Maynard from the band Have a Nice Day. Nick Barker from The Recory and Nick Barker and the Reptiles. Um, Alan West, who's a local jazz musician and the booking agent for the St Kilda Bowling Club in the 1990s. Jack Howard from Hunters and Collectors. Tim Rogers from UMI. Tex Perkins from The Beasts of Bourbon and the Cruel Sea. Dave Graney and Claire Moore from Dave Graney and the Coral Snakes and the Moodus. Genevieve McGuckin from These Immortal Souls. Matt Thomas from the Mavises. Paulie Stewart from the Painters and Dockers. And we also had an episode featuring a special industry guest to summarise a scene over the three decades. And that was Neil Webb, who was a booking agent from the Prince of Wales Band Room in the 90s. And of course today we have Phil Calvert, and he's from The Boys Next Door, which later became The Birthday Party. When I started the interviews, I thought it would be great to find out where these musicians lived and rehearsed and which buildings hold special memories for them. While these things are important and cer certainly feature as questions on the podcast series, I've realised that the best thing to come out of, out of the Unplugged in St Kilda are the common themes. Those themes that come up through all the interviews – no matter what genre of music the artist plays and no matter what decade they were hearing. They give an insight into what made St Kilda such a great place for live music and why music was such an amazing part of our rich history here. So those themes are firstly, that it was such a great place to meet other musicians and creative types. The rent was cheap and musicians could live within a few minutes walking distance to venues and their rehearsal spaces. It didn't matter what type of style, what style of music you were into or how well you played when you first started out. It was a melting pot of different genres and musos learnt their craft by jamming together and seeing other bands play every night of the week, sometimes watching three bands a night. The people I interviewed mentioned that although they were so young at the time, they met people who they still collaborate with today. They told me what venues they loved playing at although it wasn't only about the building itself or its sound, but it was the people who ran the venues. The booking agents who looked out for the bands took them under their wing and made sure they had enough gigs were thought of as almost second mothers or fathers to the people I interviewed. The last theme I'll mention today is that the artists love frequenting the local cafes and restaurants here, whether it was Toffolino's to have a band meeting or the Prince of Wales to get their Sunday roast when they were homesick 
Our restaurants played a big part in their everyday lives. You'll find out more when the podcast series is released in June. But lastly, before we get started on this episode, I'd like to say a few thank yous. I'd like to thank all the artists who have given up their time for this series and shared such a big part of their story, their history with us. They're all such an important part of St Kilda's story. And thank you especially to Phil Calvin for being here this afternoon for a more in-depth interview and public event. I'd also like to thank my volunteers for the huge amount of hours helping me research, prepare questions and reach out to artists, particularly to Rob Frankowitz, who has given me lots of suggestions for artists to interview and has helped me research prompts for questions and be, been there to support me in interviews. I'd also like to have, give a big thank you to Helen Halliday, um, Philip Stewart and the St Kilda Historical Society Committee for their ideas, encouragement and expertise. And a special thank you to Liz and Carmel who worked on the door for today and Helen for her part for today. I'd also like to thank Anna Bongiorno and Adam Ferrier for helping me to formulate this idea and working out what questions would really help us get to the crux of what we're looking for in this project. Thank you to my husband, Brendan, and his business partner, Angus, from The Animals for their help with promoting this series, the social media and for help with script writing, and to Brendan in particular for listening to me all day, every day, workshopping this idea. A big thank you to Tony, Adrian and Laz from Big Ears Audio, who are not only working their magic to bring this series to life, but who also gave me the confidence to get this project going, and along with ideas of musicians to reach out to. Unplugged wouldn't have gone ahead without the generous financial support from the City of Port Phillip through their Cultural Development Fund grant. In particular, Sharon Dawson has been so helpful with all her advice and is always so approachable. Thank you to Sharon and the Council for seeing value in this project. To all these people I've mentioned, as well as our listeners and audience members, thank you for valuing St Kilda's history and doing your part to help preserve it. So, Phil, would you like to come forward? That's okay. That's great applause for just turning up. <laughs> so, welcome to this episode of Unplugged in St Kilda. Further to our in-studio interviews, we're here at the St Kilda Army and Navy Club on Ackland Street to record a public Q&A session as a special episode of our podcast series. We've been interviewing musicians who lived here in St Kilda during the 70s to the 90s and asking them questions to find out what made St Kilda such a big part of their history. Normally it's me, Sally, who asks the questions. However, today we're going to do things differently. I'll introduce our guest and then hand it over to our audience here to ask the questions. In the 1970s, a group of teenage boys met each other at the private Melbourne boys' school, Caulfield Grammar. They played music together, and by the time they left school, they had formed their band, The Boys Next Door. They polished their craft through many gigs at places like the Crystal Ballroom in Fitzroy Street, and only a couple of years later made the move to London and changed the name to The Birthday Party. Central to their success was the fact that they had one of Melbourne's most professional musicians, Phil Calvert, as their drummer. Today, Phil joins us to tell us what inspired him about St Kilda and how it shaped him as a musician. Welcome, Phil. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so firstly, can you give us a brief summary of your musical career? 
I think you covered most of it there. So, um, yeah, well, we, uh, the band uh, kind of formed at school. And uh, then when we left school and went to art school and university and things like that, the, the musical uh, sort of connection uh, was maintained between those those guys. And uh, uh, I think we shared a similar like love of the same kind of music. But then the other thing that happened was all was music was changing a great deal at that point in time. And the whole kind of punk new wave thing arrived on our doorstep uh, just as we were all 19 and 20. And it, uh, it was not that far to leap from uh, loving uh, David Bowie and Roxy music to loving the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers. So um, that was that seemed what was fresh and that's what, the way we went. And so we went headlong into uh, that kind of music, uh, and which evolved over a period of time. But it was uh, very much that, uh, as you said in your introduction, that you know we, we played in small pubs and clubs and stuff. And uh, it's interesting because initially a lot of the focus on the live venues was slightly more north side, which is that it was in Carlton and in Richmond. And then just around that exact moment, things seemed to slide over this way. Now, there was one club um, that we did play very early on, which was Bananas, which was upstairs over the front of St. Moritz, uh, the ice skating rink. Uh, and it was a terrible load-in with a very skinny staircase uh, but it was quite a fun place to play. But that was kind of, for a, our kind of music on this side of town, uh, that was probably one of the starting out places. But then it started to move more this way um, with uh, the advent of uh, Dolores San Miguel taking over the uh, Crystal Ballroom, or as it was then, it was the Winter Garden Room at the George Hotel, um, or the, at the... Seaview Hotel? Anyway, I'm not sure. But, and, and it was as a result of the large crystal chandeliers in the Winter Garden Room that it got named the Crystal Ballroom uh, from that, that kind of thing. I do remember when, <coughs> excuse me, when uh, Laurie Richards took over running the room from uh, Dolores that um, they, uh, they cleaned up all of the room and some, they actually somebody got up on a ladder and actually polished all of the chandeliers. Um, which made them sparkle even more. And they were, of course, you know, proper real deal lead crystal chandeliers. And there was a four reel sprung uh, dance floor uh, for ballroom dancing. You spring the floor so everyone moves in, the whole thing moves. Uh, this also moves at uh, the same kind of action when people pogo. And uh, so the whole thing used to go up and down. <laughs> Um, but anyway, back to my musical career. Yeah, did that, played in that band. The band moved to... We, we met with some success here, but knew um, uh, that our music would be much better received in, in the UK. Uh, we weren't going to get top of the charts in Australia, but we would certainly be able to hopefully sell more indie-style music uh, in the UK. So we moved there, changing the name of the band, uh, which we kind of weren't... You know, that was kind of jokey and punky at the time, but now we wanted something a little bit more, you know, arty and avant-garde, I suppose. Uh, so we stole the, um, the title from a Harold Pinter play, um, you know, being arty schoolboys, and um, called the band The Birthday Party, moved to the UK, and um, we starved and froze there. Uh, we were used to living in tough conditions in and around St Kilda, so, you know, a cold water squat or something was not that uh, far removed from some of the places we may have lived previously. Um, the first year there, 
I think we played eight shows. It was very demoralizing. But um, we got picked up by uh, an influential uh, DJ there called John Peel, and he started playing our records and uh, pushing our cause, and um, then things really just went ballistic from there. I mean, when I look back at it, it's amazing. It all just seemed to just keep stepping up and up, and I, and I feel very fortunate and blessed that uh, I was part of the process, so it was good. Yeah. But let's get back to St Kilda. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so why did you, you and your bandmates move to St Kilda? Well, I think that's been covered by probably in most of your podcast of, uh, and your other interviews, of course, is that um, it was inexpensive. Um, and there was a great availability of um, inexpensive, um, you know, rental, whether it be uh, a room in a share house or a very small flat. Um, but, you know, a lot of the buildings were very dilapidated um, and uh, the landlords weren't probably too fussed about fixing them up as long as they could still, you know, get the rent. And um, I do recall quite a few houses in um, uh, Dalgetty Street and in uh, Burnett Street and like where there's these massive mansion type houses, which now are once again massive mansions for wealthy people. But then they were divided up into that room and then that hallway down there, that loo, and then share that kitchen and things like that. Or it was carved off into like a little mini bedsit type thing. And there was loads of... You know things where you go. That's a dodgy wall, and and uh, yeah. So lots of people lived in in those those kind of conditions, and um, I think also um, yeah, because a lot of people uh, of the, your same uh, age and also interests and stuff were going. Oh, I'm you know I'll get a flat and secure. The three or four of us piled together, we can rent that house. So yeah, it, it just became the likely place to be, and. As you also mentioned, as the scene evolved here more, it um, it became more and more, uh, you know, convenient because, you know, you could pretty much, as you say, walk to inexpensive places to eat, but also where you would see other bands or where you were about to play yourself. And um, I was thinking about this, um, doing this, this interview thing, and one of the things I do recall from very early on was, of course, that Ackland Street was um, very much a Jewish precinct. And so in those days in um, Victoria, um, there was half-day shopping on Saturday, and then everything was closed on Sunday, except... Ackland Street was open because they were closed on Saturday because that's their religious day. But then the shops and uh, the cafes and stuff would be open. And uh, I'm pretty sure Scheherazade is gone, you know, and the Blue Danube is gone and stuff like that. But you could get a bowl of soup and a bread roll, you know, for two bucks and stuff like that. And you could go, you know, and there was, uh, was it? Chichios or one of those, they were open on Sunday and you could get jugs of beer for $2 as long as you bought pizza. So it was things like this as well that feed into the whole, you know, being um, uh, able to... There was inexpensive stuff, but also it was kind of bits that were open when everything else was closed. And can you tell us about any special buildings in St Kilda from when you've lived here? So maybe a rehearsal space or a venue? Um. Well, I think everybody probably would have mentioned the fact that the Mushroom Records building was in Wellington Street. Uh, I know that's the other side of the junction. Is that St Kilda or is that Windsor? I'm not sure. I think it's borderline, is it? It's still St Kilda. Is it? Yeah, okay. So um, 
So there was uh, Mushroom House was there, which is where the, the record company was, but also uh, Premier Artists uh, were there, which were the booking agency that booked us. Uh, uh, the first label we were signed to was a, a faux subsidiary of uh, Mushrooms called Suicide Records, which was basically set up to be a mock, uh, a kind of a modelled on the Stiff Records model from the UK. Um, but over the road from Mushroom House was another building that was which was another big old terrace kind of thing. It's not there anymore. But a, uh, a PA company called Sam Music used to be based out of there. And it was really funny because um, big PAs in those days were all black, just these big black boxes, uh, uh, except for if they came from balance sound they were all red uh but if they came from sam music they were blue <laughs> i don't know if it was just a funny anyway we used to hire pas from those guys but we also used to they had rehearsal space there and we used to uh rehearse there uh in that house which is no longer there but it was funny because you'd be walking back and forth you go pick your worksheet up from mushroom um, from premier artists in mushroom where neil also worked but he worked neil wed worked there after they moved the whole operation to um, Dundas Place in South Melbourne. Um, but yeah, Michael Gadinsky always had a big kind of like connection with St Kilda. Um, other buildings, well, the flat I lived in in Barclay Street uh, is now the Coles or the Woolies or whatever it is. So that bit where from Barclay Street you can see Woolies, that there was a block of flats there. And it was funny because it had shops in it and it had a skinny little uh, entrance down the hall, uh, sorry, down the side of the building that was open uh, between two shops. And then there was a kind of a courtyardy sort of thing and all wooden stairs, more like they were the fire escape or maybe there was another access to the building, but I only ever went in through this little skinny way. Um, uh, Harvey uh, and Roland also lived in that block of flats for a little period of time, as did a girl called Lisa Craswell, who later on was uh, um, Howard Arkley's partner for a, a time. Um, and that's the other thing around St Kilda. There was there was a lot of art people as well. Um, and like you know, Nick was at uh, art school at CIT, but his lecture was uh, Jenny Watson, and Jenny Watson's partner was John Nixon. And these are all people who are very well known in the Australian art scene, and they all likewise lived around this area as well um other buildings buildings well you know the various venues that we played and hung out at and all the other musicians flats that you went and visited uh, you know casually passing all of the girls standing on the street corners with handbags over their arms um i said why do they always have to have a handbag i don't know <laughs> anyway and that was the same you know down robe street and greave street and you know all up gray street and everything like that um, um the various cafes um and uh i suppose most famously the um the uh the st kilda cafe um where um but with the correct order and the correct knowledge, uh, you could get some a small silver parcel uh, inside the bag with your hamburger. So, uh, but that was St Kilda. You know? That was St Kilda. <laughs> All right. And my last question before I hand it over to the audience was, um, what impact do you think St Kilda have, had on you and your music overall? Hmm. I think, I think the connectivity of all of the, people and I suppose everyone would have spoken to this at some stage is that like you go to 
the Crystal Ballroom or the venue or the Prince of Wales or any one of – and you would bump into other people that you know. It was like there was just this, you know, wave as you went past everybody <coughs> – excuse me uh, – that you knew. And um, you knew them because they were in other bands. You knew them because they were your girlfriend or somebody else's ex-girlfriend or your soon-to-be girlfriend. And um, – uh, and likewise, everybody was – it was very like family. Uh, I remember getting letters uh, in uh, the UK and postcards, oh, you'll never guess so-and-so is now going out with Ash Wednesday. You know, it's like things like that. So um, – it, it, and and so you fed off uh, that energy and off other people's um, – and the other thing I think I should also point out that, that we forget is that – up until around about this time, so in the 70s, so say, you know, mid-70s to um, pubs closed at 10 o'clock. If they had a license to have entertainment, they might be able to stay open until 11. Then they came, there was special licensing that was available on Friday and Saturday nights that if they also were able to provide a meal in, included with the price of the ticket, they might also be able to push it out to be open until 1.00. So what happens when you all come tumbling out of the front of the Seaview Ballroom at, uh, you know, 11 o'clock at night because all the gig is over and the gear is in the back of the station wagon or you're picking it up tomorrow because those stairs are killer? Um, you know, where do you go? You go to a party at someone's house. And see, in those days, that person had to have the forethought to have gone and bought a slab and two bags of ice and stuck it in the bathtub so that everyone could come over and the party could continue. And so that's the other thing that happened. You know, they go, oh, it's just around the corner. Oh, in Bath Street, in what, you know, it's, it's, you know, whatever, you know, Blanche Street, you know, this number four, you know, see you there. <laughs> and, and so that was, that was part of what else. And, and the other thing, when you talk about influencing your music and your creativity, this is where at the party afterwards there's a lot more discourse, there's a lot more discussion. And also um, there wasn't Spotify and there wasn't the internet and you couldn't just like hear a song and then hold up your phone and go, oh, that's that band, I'll go look for that in a record store. No, you went to parties and someone played a record or you um, saw a, a record at someone's party and looked at the cover and go, I have to know, like from the cover, I have to know what this band sounds like. You know, and, and so that was also the thing. It fed everybody else's information stream into what was uh, influencing uh, the music that you might make or listen to. Uh, and, and then you also find like-minded souls and you go, oh, they go, oh we've got a band. They go, oh, gee, I've got a band too, you know. Uh, and they go, oh, yeah, we know. And they go, can we support your band? You know, okay. You know, so there was that kind of thing. You know, so younger people came and saw, you know, this, when I say younger, like guys who are 18 came and saw the guys who were 19, you know, so it wasn't that big a deal. But, yeah, it, it was the, the sense of community that came out of it. And, um, yeah, I, I, there was that, that feeling. You've got also, I, you know, I might be repeating myself, but there was a lot of poverty. It really, you know, people were, you know, we, thank God for Gough Whitlam, we got $50 a week fortnightly in a check, you know, but you had to go and pick it up, you know, kind of sign on and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I think that, that substituted, uh, 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 subsidised rather, not just the music industry, but the film industry, every actor, 
you know, all the artists and everything like that. If you, you know, you had some part-time job, you got your unemployment benefit and you played a few shows, you know. Um, but uh, fortunately for me, um, that, that kind of, you know, uh, picked up and my career evolved. Uh, you know, I didn't become insanely wealthy or, you know, drive sports cars or, you know, blah, blah. You know, like, well, it wasn't that kind of success, but at least it did get to the stage where uh, I could make a living from being a musician, which was some of the best times in my life. Great. Thank you. Um, does anyone want to start asking questions? Hello. Uh, yes, I, I wrote a book, The George, um, Life and Times in St Kilda, and I had to write about the Crystal Ballroom and I wasn't there and it was really hard. It was the hardest part of the book because um, I had to find out about it and everybody I spoke to, it was so important. It was just a really important part of people's lives. And I was part of the, the Carlton Band thing and I didn't even know this was going on, you know, a little bit older, different music. Um, but when I did research it, it was I realised how profound it was. It mm. was just really an incredible um, revolution, really. Um, so I want to know about that that tension with the with the Carlton bands, like what was happening there. Uh, no, I, I don't think there was any actual tension. It's really oh, interesting because the um, the Carlton, yeah, when we first started playing, uh, you know, we were playing at places like Martinis and we were playing at, um, uh, well, we never played at the Pram Factory because they'd already had the fire by then. Um, but we did play uh, at the Kingston in Richmond. Uh, we, we had a residency at the, the Tiger Room, which then became the Tiger Lounge. That was in Richmond. And we were actually one of the bands very much from that scene the sports were massive um uh like stephen cummings was like uh, almost a mentor to us he gave us lots of support slots with the sports as did to a slightly lesser extent the falcons um and so and it was really funny because when it did move over this side some bands did end up playing over here but some others did not and then of course at the same time uh there was a move further north when uh michael godinski opened up bombay rock which was originally in burke upstairs in burke street in the city and um played there with the sports a few times but then they opened up uh bombay rock out in uh, sydney road or uh, phoenix street and so that became much more of a mecca for those uh, and it was a really well-run venue with a big stage, and you know it was, uh, um, you know, I mean, we played there as well. Like we weren't, we weren't, um, yeah. I mean, we weren't completely locked to St Kilda. It's just that when we played here, we got a much like our crowd. We really got our crowd, and I'll never forget um, uh, after we went to England the, uh, in. Uh, 1980 and we came back at the very end of 80 um, to play here and also to start recording a new album to take back to the UK and um, I, had we done sound check? I can't remember anyway I came in I, I got out of a car maybe a taxi I'm not sure in Fitzroy Street just near the ballroom and there's this massive queue down the stairs out there right up the street you know and I'm, I saw someone I knew in the queue. I said, what's going on? You know, what's the queue? And they said, well, you're playing tonight. <laughs> you know, and I, because I'd never, it was all of a sudden that it had just gone next level kind of thing. But no, I think 
I don't think there was there was a little bit of uh, argy bargy, I suppose, between um, uh, some of the north side new wave bands uh, and maybe some of the south side new wave bands, uh, but not really anything. It was more, you know, who we all th- we all thought we were pretty good, and it was just um, you know who could make a better record or who was pulling more people or who you know there was supposedly. Um, a great um, friction between the models and the boys next door, which is absolutely rubbish because we were all friends, you know, kind of thing. But the fans go, no, I like them better, you know, like you know, it, was, it was silly. But um, no, I, I, it, the, the Carlton scene did kind of then wane a bit because it really did all get sucked this way and then out to Bombay Rock and those pubs. And this is, of course, what's happened to St Kilda. Carlton got gentrified, Richmond got gentrified, and so then you can't have loud rock and roll music. Oh, my God, imagine that. They build apartments on top of the Esplanade Hotel, and next thing you know, there's rock bands play there, you know. Um, But, you know, I'm sure they'll work that out. I mean, will it ever come back to St Kilda like the way it was, you know? You got it goes goes around in cycles, I suppose, if you figure um, that George was massively you know, a very fancy hotel originally, you know, a seaside retreat for the city folk and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, it fell into disrepair and it was old people were living there and dying there and stuff. And then, so I suppose if we let it just go round another 40, 50 years, there'll be some little clubs and shops and places that no one can rent and someone will go, oh, I could put a band on there, make a few bucks, sell some beers. And that's that's what entrepreneurs do. They find the next place to do it. You know, currently it's kind of, I suppose, you know, Northcote and Fitzroy and stuff like that. But uh, who knows where it'll be next? You know, will will they still have guitars? I don't know. A question at the back. <laughs> hey, thanks, Phil. Um, the burger story has been intriguing me for years because about. Ten years ago, I was in Canberra and getting a cab to the airport and talking, blah, 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 I live in St. Kilda. He said, I, the cab driver said, I used to live in St. Kilda. He said, he said it was at Leo's. He said, can you still get a burger with the lot? And I said, what's a burger? The way he said it, I was like, what's a burger with the lot? He said, well, you ask for a burger with the lot and you get the extra alongside it. So you're saying it was the St. Kilda Cafe. Now, where was... Yeah, St. Kilda Cafe, not Leo's. And I was going to check with everybody in the room in the St. Kilda society do you all know that the front of leo's spells leo because all i've pointed that out to people all from all over the world yeah no no i've been there. i said no go across the road say l-e-o-s you know that's hilarious so but, where uh, was the saint kilda cafe? i love it uh, st kilda calf was uh the um and uh i think there's even a famous story that um one evening uh some of my uh, comrades in arms were in there and uh, a, a famous international entertainer, one Tom Waits, uh, arrived there for the burger, potentially oh. with the lot. So, <laughs> a good but look, it wasn't the only place that people scored no. drugs, you know, that was, um, you know, the bikers had the speed, uh, you know, it, it was, it, I don't... Uh, I don't like to get too caught up in all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I know that was around. I don't think it completely informed uh, everything that was going on. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to, to, 
to glorify, no, 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 you know. It's, just, it's and, just when you mentioned that burger, I was like, hang on, I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that and just a quick musical question. What made you play the drums? Um, yeah. That, so when I was like four or something like that, the kindergarten teacher decided that I was uh, banging away on stuff or something like that. Uh, and she lived up the road from us. Uh, it's in Carnegie. And uh, lo and behold, one day uh, arrived at my parents' house with a toy drum and saying, I think Phil's pretty into this. Uh, and but that was the initial thing. Uh, then it, it came from there um, that that was something that I like to look at or you know see in music shop windows. But uh, in the um, 60s, the uh, state schools of Victoria um, well, in, in Melbourne and certainly in the area I was, they had marching bands. So what happened was uh, uh, after the bell rang and there was assembly and all that kind of stuff, the marching band would line up and play a routine of marching music for all the kids to then march into their classrooms. And uh, I used to take lessons every Wednesday at lunchtime for 20 cents with George Watson uh, and then after him, Les Tasker. And... Uh, that's where I got all my chops and, and learned that. And then, yeah, the, the, the die was set. Then, you know, you've seen Ringo Starr on TV and you go, that's a big shiny drum kit and I'm going to get me one of those. So, yeah, you spoke a little bit about what sort of um, attracted yourself and your, uh, I guess, other musicians and stuff around that time to the area. But um, I think broadly St Kilda kind of has always attracted artists, musicians, creative types that kind of thing even up until now and going back you know all through history you know, why do you think that is um i know you've talked about that that particular time but why in general do you do you, do you think yeah that is interesting because of course there were as i said before you know the art you know the, the the painting fraternity were around here i mean um uh arkley had a studio upstairs in chapel street over what was JB Hi-Fi for some time, or I think it was uh, Dan Murphy's at one stage or something like that. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe the proximity to Paran Tafe as well, um, uh, Caulfield Institute. But, but yes, um, lots of artists have actually, you know, historically lived in the area as well, and I'm not that well-versed on that. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I have, you know, read and heard it mentioned that, that, that you know, I don't know, I think Gareth Sanson lives in St Kilda or like, yeah, I mean, there's, and, and there's various, loads of other people from even way before that. Um, I don't know. Um, is it the seaside? Is it the, is it the, the, the interesting architecture of St Kilda that, 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 that people are attracted to? Um, it does have a different look to a lot of other suburbs and things. And I think because it was, I suppose, like the bluestone edifices in, you know, the city that were all funded by the gold rush, um, you know, at some stage, a lot of, you know, wealthy people built amazing houses uh, in St Kilda. And so, you know, it was probably pretty fancy before it got its, you know, slightly um, different tag later on. Uh, and so... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about that. I mean, there's, there's the Palais was there. The, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Cool. Sure, but good question. Check with the historical society; they may know. <laughs> They're very knowledgeable. <laughs> 
Thank you, Phil. I have, I'm learning a lot because um, I was living in St Kilda round about that time and naively always thought that Leo's sold only spaghetti. <laughs> so I'm learning a bit. I was wondering about discos because it was very much the time of discos, wasn't it? Were there many around St Kilda and did they compete with you or anything? No, they didn't compete. There was one. Uh, well, okay. Let's not forget that across the road um, uh, on the lower Esplanade there was Bojangles um, and uh, the next to the St Kilda Sea Bars uh, and next door to St Moritz was the thing that became the venue which was called Earl's Court. But uh, I do remember um, that in the 70s they had bands on there but, but bands I had no idea what. Maybe they were for um, more you know, like 60-40 covers band kind of thing. They weren't, no, reggae bands, what were they? I can't remember. But uh, anyway, and then that, that evolved into it. But no, there was a disco on uh, Fitzroy Street down uh, towards uh, the Prince End, somewhere in the middle there. I can't remember what it was called. But the disco scene, yeah, was um, very big uh, and stayed concurrent uh, at, at the same time as the new wave thing. And this is one of these things where people started to pick tribes. Uh, and what you've got now is that music is so diverse uh, that it's it becomes difficult for any individual band, uh, even now that Melbourne is 5 million people, when then it was 1 million people, um, to pull a crowd. Because, you know, someone might be into Scandinavian death metal and the other person's into reggae and then the other person only wants to listen to punk and then the other guy says, oh, I'm into Americana and country. And so it becomes very different. Back then you kind of had two choices. You had what's on the radio or what's in the pubs. And then some of the pub stuff crossed over into the radio and then you get your Aussie crawl and you get those kind of, and all of a sudden they're having hits and they become bigger you know chisel all that kind of stuff but they all started in the pubs and uh but the disco thing you're quite right kept going but most of the discos that uh i used to frequent um before my hair got short and spiky um was uh, were all in the city really pretty much um uh and south yarra and turak and stuff like that um and I suppose it was fancier and it was much more dressed up in disco, you know, like much more your hair was, you know, guys as well, your hair was done, you had the right shoes, the right clothes, you were very neat and tidy if you were going to the very Saturday Night Fever kind of thing that was, it was like that. But, but hey, there's nothing wrong with going for a boogie at a disco, that's, that's still good fun, you know. So, um, yeah, not so many around here. Um, and I wasn't paying attention, I was... My head was uh, in the other music by then. Uh. Thank you so much, Phil. This is fantastic. I, um, you mentioned the sort of art scene that was here as well, and I've read Jenny Watson say that it was uh, Soho. And I kind of, I wasn't around at the times, but I imagine it and hearing you discuss it. So I don't know if this is really a question, but some of the things you've said... I've just imagined that you were immersed in it. You lived day and night this type of life for music. And I guess from it, it evolved, your own sound evolved from it. And so when you left St Kilda and first went to the UK, you said that it was pretty bleak for the first year. But 
in being immersed in it when you didn't have to think from the outside in type of thing, then you're in the UK and you're sort of on the outside. So I just wondered how did that feel all of a sudden? Did it give you a sense of St... Did you feel homesick for St Kilda <laughs> and that type of being on the inside and, and, you know, did you think you were taking it for granted? And But then again, when you're in the UK, that's when you sort of... You come back to Australia and you're famous. <laughs> you weren't famous, sort of. You know, I don't know if there's a question in there. Uh, but I, just... I think I think um, I think youth is a wonderful thing, and when uh, really you um, you are right. I mean, the, the whole thing. We were absolutely consumed uh, by what we were doing and what we were working on and what we could possibly achieve and what it might sound like and uh, and trying to come you know, find you know our our version of our new kind of thing as, as people in, in artistic pursuits are, are often trying to do but um, uh, you know you don't need a lot of food when you're 20 you know kind of thing it's like uh, and 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 those things really pale into insignificance while you are really just completely and the same thing I think England was a real um, uh, yeah I think because we we were used to working so much. I mean, to give you, I've recently been um, interviewed for, they're making a documentary about the birthday party, which is, I'm quite excited about. But um, it's made me have to go back and look at all this stuff. I mean, people ask me questions and facts and figures and things like that. So in the, the time before we went to the UK, we were playing somewhere between 90 and 130 shows a year. So you're talking two to three a week right and then sometimes two of those would be on the one night you know and so then when you go to the situation all of a sudden you're now in uh stuck in your you know your 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 garret as one likes to see an artist being stuck uh with now but your one guitar and you can't plug an amp in because the neighbors will go crazy uh trying to work out how to write new songs which is what we ended up being uh, stuck like that for we only played eight shows in or nine in the whole first 11 months we were in the UK but we worked it out you know we had to make it work so we we worked under those constraints and in those conditions to still try and get some kind of an outcome and still try and get to whatever the next step was uh, and yeah it was um it was hard but we um we worked, and then the thing was, you're right, when we came back to Australia, because it's England, you know, it's very bleak and grey, and it's cold, and the beer's terrible, and then you get on a plane and you come back to Australia, it's summer, oh my God, it's summer, and you know, you, you know, um, and all your friends are there, and they're so happy that you're back, and they're, you know, taking the piss out of you because you accidentally said, 10p when you saw a 20 cent piece or something uh but no but we were back and it was wonderful and we were in St Kilda and we were at the ballroom and standing in the birdcage bar with my pot of beer surrounded regaling them with stories of starvation and how the next record's going to be amazing and the next record actually was amazing it's um if you are familiar with the band it, it the, the the records prior to that sounded one way and then after that that time in England, we came back and released a, a record called Prayers on Fire, and it was a real change for the band. And that wouldn't have happened without that, you know, 
the suffering for our art, so to speak, you know, kind of thing. So, but yeah, coming back was, was pretty magical as well. Melbourne, perhaps along with Adelaide, is um, renowned for being the city in Australia where people will still gently try and probe. So where did you go to school, even when you're 50 years old? Uh, now, I know that you came from Crawford Grammar. You and I are roughly the same vintage, and I can remember a lot of um, very arty people coming out of Melbourne Grammar as well at the time. What are your... I should say I've also read Doris McGuell's book uh, and I get the sense that there was a lot of private school rebellion, the classic sort of James Dean, what are you rebelling against, what have you got? And I'd just like to get your sense as to how... Do, did you think there was a class divide in some of the music and the art scene film scene and things like that, that people really did, in many cases, come from, you know, from families and had the education and I think the smarts and um, advantages that perhaps people from, you know, Coburg and Broadmeadows and, you know, far north of the Yarra and the outer suburbs didn't have. Mm. I... Would, it's really, uh, uh, number one I'll point out right now, whilst Caulfield Grammar is insanely posh school these days and very expensive to send your kids to, uh, with no disrespect to my father, it was the least expensive private school um, that you could go to um, as far as the fee structure was concerned. Um, not that that's, you know, got easy to do. I, I feel very privileged that, you know, my parents decided the most important thing for me was that, you know, my father didn't get a, a very great education and my mother finished, you know, at the end of second form and stuff, which is what you did back then. Uh, and so they said, no, 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 they, and they worked hard and they, you know, spent all their money to send both myself and my sister to a private school. Now... Let's cut from that to, okay, now you're at the Crystal Borum. That's not all private school kids, right? So Shane from La Femme's from, from Frankston, man. He went to Frankston High or whatever. You know, it's like, it's not, so it wasn't that kind of thing. And we weren't all, you know, standing around, you know, reading Rimbo, Rambo and, you know, passing off, you know, it's like, uh, you know. So, yeah, um, I think there was a kind of a, a, a sense in that scene that we were all um, trying to be quite um, um, uh, uh, literary or um, uh, uh, thoughtful. And, and so education didn't necessarily have to come from what school you went to. Uh, it might just come from uh, what books you're reading uh, and what books you're reading now uh, and what books you're swapping with other people within that scene and things like that. Um, I felt that that whole... Uh, group of people at that time was um, completely um, uh, uh, non-class discrimination and there was a really big thing about um, that too uh, uh, at that time you know there was no issue with people being gay there was no issue with people being of any uh, particular ethnic uh, extraction there was no you know uh, we were very much from 
the ideology that everyone was going to be free to make their own choices and you know that, that that's the way the world was going it's really weird because the world didn't go that way i really believed back then that by the time i was you know the 64 that i am now that you know all my gay friends would just be married to each other and we'd be this massive melting pot without there being any you know racism and anything like that in the world and you know we still haven't got there so i found that uh, that's a little disappointing but that scene then seemed to be really hell-bent on being inclusive to everybody and not being discriminatory and and that yeah i mean that that was that was really a thing and and i found that more so when i got to the the uk um, because of course then you've got, you know, we didn't really have any black people then because we'd already killed them all or sent them off elsewhere, uh, to keep the cities nice and white. But you get to the UK, there was plenty of, you know, um, uh, uh, West Indians and Africans and, you know, and so these people became my friends as well. Um, but I, I do remember a very first time experience where I was on a, a bus and I paid the guy the bus fare and the bus guy went to give me the ticket back and he was, you know, black as African, Ethiopian or something like that. And I almost felt my hand move. And I thought, and it was really a weird thing for me because I thought I never knew I had that bone in my body. But that's obviously, that's, that's, that's my upbringing. And so you've got to undo that stuff within yourself. So, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a very inclusive uh, kind of situation. But yeah, isn't that weird, that Melbourne thing about the bloody, what school you went to? It's so funny. God. Anyway. Good question. Okay. I was just going to take that point a little bit further. I think it's a really good point, and I think you are hitting on something. And the fabulous thing about that era was how you could go and see bands and it was safe. And if you went to the beer barns out in the suburbs, which was the other music scene that was happening, there'd be a fight... You know, and you could be have a, you know, glass coming over your head or, you know, anything. You could be embroiled in it. But you went to the ballroom, you're always safe. I don't know if I ever saw a fight there and I was there all the time. But it was a different, it was a much more, you know, um, God, it was raw and it was rough. <laughs> but it was uh, more sophisticated in an idea sense and a more kind of respectful of art. There was a chap who used to come to our gigs all the time, Matt, uh, and Matt was a lovely guy. I, I can't remember his surname, but he was. He would often be quite off his nut. He'd often like too much to drink, or he might have uh, taken uh, sedatives and then drank on top of that, which is something that people do, used to do back then. And I remember one night, Matt was in a really, really bad way, and Graham Richmond, who was the publican of the hotel, uh, got Matt uh, and uh, got wrote down Matt's address and gave it to the taxi driver and gave the taxi driver money to get Matt home safely. You know, I mean, that's, you know... I did see... Um, one uh, uh, violent incident and it was uh, uh, Richmond were in the finals and Graham Richmond was a, a Richmond, he was on the board at Richmond and all this kind of, and something went down between someone and someone and, and Graham was going to go somebody. But no, I never saw a fight amongst any of the punters at, uh, at the ballroom. And you're right, it was, um, St Kilda was... St Kilda was safe. I never thought I was going to get mugged. I never thought I was going to get... I mean, it was 
it was weird and it was wild and it was there was some pretty crazy things going on out there but you know unlike these modern times where um you know if you see somebody and they're completely heavily under the influence of ice uh coming down the street um that's something to be very scared of and yet um you know you see someone nodding off in the corner of somewhere because they have uh, taken heroin um it, it's a lot less confronting or frightening you might say are you okay buddy and they go no i'm fine you go okay well that's that's good you know but they're, they're not going to bite your face off you know kind of thing um yeah it it yeah, the, the scene was, you're right, and it was funny because we do, sometimes we would get, you know, split ends would be playing out at um, uh, the one of those beer bars, as you mentioned, out in, I can't remember where they were, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly, the Burvale, actually the Burvale, you're right. Uh, and um, split ends, I said, oh, we'll give you the support. Awesome, you know, so, but no, because we, we got paid, you know, it's like, and so we'd go and do this show out there and it was always... Um, yeah, quite confronting and you're always happy when you got the gear back in the truck and got out of there, you know, and back to St Kilda. Uh, I just wanted to, to ask a transition question, um, which is really about uh, the Indigenous influence in music these days as opposed to what you observed then. But after that, I was going to perhaps suggest that Philip Stewart, who's here and who's on our executive, uh, ask you a little bit about the um, gay scene in those days. Anyway, so my question is bringing you right up to now and uh, where you think Indigenous music was and how you see a transition or not between um, what you were doing then. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'd have to say... Um Back then, not that many First Nations people in... I'm trying to think if there were any in the scene, but then, of course, some people back then might not have might have had that heritage and not identified that way because it wasn't done quite so openly. Um, but then there did become uh, later, probably more in the 80s, when you got bands like No Fixed Address and you got some of the other um, kind of... Uh, reggae-ish bands that had First Nations people in them. Um, and I do recall um, a, a chap I knew, who, a saxophonist, Chris Coyne, and he was playing with Paul Kelly and went on that great sojourn with uh, Kelly uh, up into um, uh, the Alice and all that and met with all the people and, and you know, got down and all played music and, you know, as did Midnight Oil a little bit later as well. But um, in the scene around St Kilda at that point in time within our music scene, I would say there was absolutely pretty much, I can't think of one First Nations people in that whole situation. Uh, but, of course, they were around St Kilda uh, and uh, they were sometimes visible around the streets. I used to think... And this could be a total, just like my, my recollection of Melbourne at that point in time. But I thought the kind of like where the, the, the greatest concentration of Indigenous people were um, in Melbourne, to my mind, were kind of around Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, and around that area where uh, those commission flats were. And also, I believe there was a building there 
it might have been an old bank or post office or something like that that was some kind of uh, initial cultural centre for, for for First Nations people. For um, but yeah, I, um, I do remember you know you'd see occasionally around the street small you know small gatherings of of Aboriginal people, but no, in it it was pretty whitey western at the at the Crystal Ballroom, that's for sure. Um, but it, I don't know. That's that was just that scene. I think it's been a a fantastic. Um, uh, evolution uh, and uh, within the music scene to see so many um, First Nations people like recognised in it but doing really well in it and having a really strong voice in it and saying you know the right things about what should be happening for their people as well and that and and I'm really I'm really sort of down with the uh, the Victorian government doing this truth telling thing that they're doing at the moment which I think the whole country needs to do um, to to get a handle on, you know, what really went down and, and for it to be un understood properly um, as to, uh, yeah, what, what um, the terrible things that, that happened to those people, you know. Oh, that's heavy. Oh. Uh, hello, Phil. It's great to hear you, your views on things. I had uh, the experience of playing in bands back in the 60s and early 70s and I was in that city group where I played at the Thump and Tum and it was mostly blues and that sort of thing with Blackfeather and I was in a band called Ram Blues with Shane Day and a few people like that. But in relation to Helen's observation, there was very little gay stuff in those days. And I'm pleased to hear that it had evolved somewhat in the four or five years in our age difference um, to the time you were playing at the Crystal Ballroom. So it would be interesting to just hear a little bit more about how that happened and what your experiences was there in secured at that time. In relation to, sorry, I, I, I'm a drummer and I'm slightly deaf in this ear. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I'd be just interested to hear that, as Helen suggested, what the gay ah. component was at that time. Oh, yeah, well, um, oh, of course we had some... Uh, well, okay, uh, I, um, even more of my sordid past. So when I finished school, I went to um, uh, Brunsden and I did film, television and drama because uh, that was what I was interested in as well as music. Uh, but I was there for a short period of time and I'd moved out uh, and I was hanging around St Kilda and I thought, no, all this bussing back and forth to Monash to study something that's not really working for me. I've done enough school. And so I quit that and I got an apprenticeship as a hairdresser. So um, the great thing uh, was I was working in a really fabulous salon in the city and um, it was hilarious because um, – Everybody there just assumed that I was gay, and um, and which is great because then all the female apprentices try and show you the error of your ways. So then, so no, you just need to meet the right girl, Phil. Anyway, um, but so through that, I ended up in a lot of clubs and a lot of discos, and also met a lot of uh, uh gay people. Uh, and then through that also because it was quite a fancy salon that I worked in, one of the ladies there was uh, a really exceptional head but she did a lot of work for magazine and for runway shows and things like that and I was her apprentice and so I met all these incredible fashion models and and people like this but they also hung out in clubs and also like to hang out with all the uh, the gay people and so some of the girls were gay as well but um 
So that was that was that scene. And then those people were all um, because the new wave thing initially did look like a, a whole lot of dress up and play, which is good fun. Then there was a lot of uh, you know gay people around that. But then even within our scene, uh, there was um, quite a few uh, people who were you know partners and. And that was that was all. It was all totally fine, you know. He's with him. That's that's cool. Um, Tim McHugh was uh, around the scene quite a lot, and he's a a, a very entertaining individual. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just we wanted everybody to be regular and everybody to be on the same footing so your sexuality had nothing to do with it it's about your musical contribution or it's about your um uh your social contribution or it's about you know um if the party's at your house you know then and did you buy the beer and put it in the bathtub okay then you're fine with me we're coming so it was um yeah and over the years i mean i've got you know what what they say it's funny like you know some of my best friends are gay you know (laughs) it's like it's um yeah and and i think that that actually is one thing where we actually have legally at least made some progress in our society uh and uh if we can if we can get up to speed with the first nations stuff almost to where we're trying to get to with the uh the inclusive uh, uh, uh you know nature of dealing with people with other sexuality uh then uh, that would be good if we can get both of them up so everyone just says that's that's okay for everybody you know that you're the same and that would be that would be good but no back then uh you know there were certain clubs and stuff where you went afterwards and stuff that would were definitely you know frequented much more by you know gay people and uh it's okay i think it's flattering if a guy grabs your ass you know um what was the most magical thing you ever saw in secure like it- an artist, um, an artist or a band, or what? Was there a moment where you saw a band or an artist one day and thought, "Wow," yeah. or, or even in your career, if it wasn't in St Kilda? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, certainly in my life, I've been fortunate to see and uh, uh, you know um, a, a lot of amazing performers here and overseas and meet, you know. Very people who are you know very famous, the people that I massively looked up to, and then you get to meet them and go, oh, they're just a regular person like me. Um, but uh, um, St Kilda, St Kilda, St Kilda. You know, I, I think of sort of like funny little acts of kindness and things like that. That uh, like that, like Graham putting that guy in the taxi, or like you know somebody helping somebody up the stairs or out of somewhere where they where they weren't doing so good or you know, um, things like that. I mean, I saw some amazing music at the at the ballroom, that's for sure. And uh, it was one one thing that, that did happen. Uh, usually international touring acts would come to Melbourne, they would play Festival Hall or if they were, you know, really ridiculously massive eventually, I suppose they started doing things like the MCG or they'd be at the... Um, the old swimming pool, uh, which is now Collingwood's training facility. Uh, that was a venue for some time. Then they built Rod Laver and so... But what happened during the kind of, you know, late 70s, there were bands that people really wanted to see from the UK, but they weren't really playing 
they weren't going to get 4,000 people into Festival Hall. So they started bringing out bands like uh, The Stranglers and XTC and The Cure and Susie and the Banshees, and they would play the pub scene pretty much as you know, the same size venues that, that we would. And so all of a sudden, these guys whose records you have bought uh, were coming out to Australia and playing in these sort of medium-sized rooms. I'm not sure when the Palace started operating, uh, but I think it was around that time, late 70s or something like that, that they built that. It was a shame that built that, that, that burnt down because that was a fabulous place to play. Um, yeah, and that's still a car park. You know, they should build another venue. Um, yeah, I look, I, yeah, I've, I've seen, you know, I mean, I've seen Prince, I've seen Bowie, I've seen Iggy, you know. I, Iggy bought me a beer, you know. That doesn't get much better than that, you know. But uh, I, I still think that that moment in time, there's a kind of like a period from about 78 to about 80, I don't know, somewhere, five let's say or six or seven um where melbourne was really vibing the scene was really healthy there was just seemed to be a million bands uh not just playing at the ballroom just playing all of the time um uh and and it was a very 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 vibrant scene i don't know that we'll see it quite like that ever again uh because as i said the the um the, the massive sort of breadth of styles of music now uh, means it's 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 more sort of thinly spread, and uh, I think it's very difficult to run venues. And I'll I'll point out another interesting fact that came into my brain the other day that uh, we used to do a residency, uh, or even let's say if, if you were going to go on a a Wednesday or a Thursday night or something to the ballroom, and it wasn't a particularly big night, the the admission price to see two or three bands might be four bucks or something like that. Um, but let's say, okay, I'll go back to an, the, an earlier example because I can do this actual factual. 1978, we did a residency at the Tiger Room in Richmond. It was on a Wednesday evening. It was $2 to get in. A pot of beer cost 47 cents. Right? pack of cigarettes was about 60 or 70 right so but let's do the maths okay what's a pot of beer now six bucks right so two dollars equals four beers right four sixes are 24 show me a venue in town if you walked up and they said there's two bands playing tonight you've never heard of them 24 bucks to get in no one's going no one's going so that's that's the difference, you know. Like the you know, uh, and you were I was earning what as a hairdresser seventy seven bucks a week, you know, um, in nineteen seventy six or whatever. So it's like that. That's you know, if you you do the math, that people are still actually earning way more money. But the idea of paying twenty bucks to go see two bands is just too much, and uh, you know, it's just not valued in the same way. Or maybe the beer's too expensive, I don't know. One of the two. Oh, good day, Phil. Um, I'm just wondering if you're still in touch with um, you know, Mick or Nick Cave, and because uh, might I suggest um, if you're thinking about the 50th anniversary stadium tour, um, <laughs> you've got to start working now, and can I suggest the Palais as that would be a good kickoff point? Yeah, I'm... Um 
Uh, you, mm, you might get Mick and me on board, but I'm not sure that Nick would be up for it. Uh, I actually would not do it um, because we don't have uh, Tracy Pugh and we don't have Roland Howard. And uh, it was a band made up of those people. Um, but no, I'm still in touch with uh, with Nick and with Mick. Um, uh, you know, Mick more often because, of course, he lives uh, in North Melbourne. Uh, and he's here more often than he's not, although he does travel quite a bit. And, you know, Nick's either in Brighton or, well, so Hove, or he's uh, on the road. But um, uh, there is a documentary being made at the moment um, on actually the birthday party. It's not about Nick. It's not about um, what happened after that or before that. It's only about those five people in that period of time. Um, and uh, I, f- I heard yesterday that um, Vim Venters has come on as executive producer for it. Uh, they got funding out of BMG um, and plus two German television stations, uh, and it's they've uh, they're rough cutting at the moment. It's already been accepted to go to Berlin, uh, and they're going to see if they can get it to Cannes. So that will be pretty interesting, and uh, maybe. The three of us that are still alive will turn up to that. So, um, uh, but yeah, the whole idea of any kind of a reunion thing would be would be uh, wouldn't work for me at all. You know, I mean, and that's that's the one thing um, which also when you're asked to do things like this or this uh, interview I did the other day for this documentary, you start looking back and you look back at your scrapbooks and your photos and your diaries from that time and the and the set lists and the uh, the itineraries for the touring and things like that and then you see names of people and uh there sadly there's a whole bunch of them that that didn't get didn't make it you know and um yeah yeah sorry <laughs> sorry um, yeah, and a lot of them didn't make it back then, and that was the really bad bit back then. So, like, you know, Tracy dying was really tragic, and then everyone said it was drugs, which it wasn't. He died from an epileptic seizure. Um, you know, Roland made it to 50, um, but, you know, he had uh, challenges, and uh, his life had, uh, you know, just caught up with his liver, and that wasn't going to work. Uh, but the thing I find when I go back and looking back at this, I find these letters and these notes and these things from people uh, and people of my age at that time, like in their their you know late teens and early twenties and stuff like that, were um, you know dropping dead from drugs and stuff. And it was, yeah, when you think back, it was a lot of people. You know, it was a lot of people. Anyway, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm going again. Um- I realised one of the things when you move to St Kilda is you have to expect to be uh, inconvenienced by other people and that's just part of the deal of living here. Not so much now, but, you know, it's still... You walk down the street and you're like, oh, you know, for God's sake, do you have to do what you're doing? You know, but that's part of moving here. And I grew up in a nice suburb in, in Brisbane and it was very stable and moving here, it's a bit of quite eye-opening. Was it the same back then when you moved from outside to St Kilda? Was it a, a change of worldview in terms of... Just accepting ex- oh, eccentricity. And- absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, because but but that was part of the you know the bohemian nature of St Kilda. But it was, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, where I grew up in, you know, Carnegie, and then after that, McKinnon. Uh, all I went to school in East St Kilda, and most of my friends were around that kind of Caulfield area and things like that. Which is no, really, only a very short tram ride to get down here, down Balaclava Road, and be right here. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly, you know, uh, um, 
well, to see really poor people, you know, who were – actually, you didn't really see people on the street like you do now. Like people weren't – there weren't sort of bundles of, you know, mattresses in doorways of shops with people sleeping, which I think is terrible now, you know. Um, but back then, yeah, look, there'd be – like you say, there'll be people, you know, you walk around a corner, there'll be some guy will be urinating up against the wall or whatever. And um, there were um, people who were um, very, because um, of the cheap accommodation, like it's, uh, although I think there were more DOS houses back then that were run by the charities and societies. Um, uh, if you were actually mentally ill, I think you probably did end up at, you know, Q or Mont Park or one of those kind of... I'm not saying that was necessarily a good place to be, but at least you weren't on the street. But there were people walking around St Kilda who were a little lost and disoriented and, and you know, or really drunk or, you know, and or drinking metho or, you know, I mean, terrible things like that. So, yeah, you had, you had to have... It was an attitude readjustment to being here. I think also... Um, Look, you know, the street walkers, uh, the cops, uh, then the guys cruising in their cars for the girls, um, all of that kind of stuff that, that went around it. You, you, you become aware of it and then you see it and then for, at first you go, oh, well, and then after a while you don't see it anymore because it's just part of the landscape of where you are. So it's just that's just how it is around here kind of thing. But, yeah, coming from, you know, neatly manicured lawns of McKinnon to – to hear but you know of course i had to get out of home i was at war with my father um i um yeah it was just an impossible situation so you know the other thing you know people these days i've got you know people my age and uh, they've got children and you know oh no the girlfriend's staying over what it you know surely you know and he's sleeping on the couch oh no in the bed together heaven forbid yeah, you know, we all had to, you know, work it out in the back of a car. Come on, you know. <laughs> but yeah, different times, different times. Hi, this has been a fantastic conversation. I just want to go back to sort of what you were saying about how you got financial support in the form of the doll or whatever. Do you think we're losing a whole lot of would-be musicians, artists, etc.? Because obviously that's just not an option anymore to be in that space and live and and make art and sit around and have those conversations that you were talking about that happened in St Kilda and elsewhere. And yeah, I, I, I totally think we're losing it and I think it's the lack of funding for the arts just in general um, from the, the government uh, of any stripe, but you're more likely um, to get a bit more funding um, from the, the left of the world. Um, but, yeah, I, I think like, um, the whole thing of um, the doll uh, was... Uh, I suppose a bit. Uh, I was probably being comical, well, trying to be funny then. But there, there was still there was other funding around besides the fact we were subsidising our our existence by using by signing on to get unemployment benefit. Um, you got you know we also thank you Goff had free medical, so you don't have to worry about going to the doctor. The doctor didn't cost anything, um, and I. I'm, you know, they're still trying to whittle that one away as well, you know. But uh, I think, yeah, funding for the arts back then, you also in film, they had the 10BA. Uh, there was uh, much more funding for um, uh, colleges and universities. Don't forget, university was free. Tech was free. Art school was free, right? Not free and you have to pay it back later. No, 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 just completely free. And I think that is the thing that really drove it. And I think that... 
I, I mean, you know, I'm not a politician, but God, you know, put the money in, don't put it into submarines, man, put it into universities, you know, put it into books, put it into education, make your people smart, you won't need a submarine, you know, you won't, you, you know, the, the wars of the future aren't going to be fought by people, you know, with tanks and stuff like that, you know, there's just going to be smart people are going to ring up China and go, I'm switching off your internet now. You know, uh, <laughs> anyway, so it, it, yeah, I, I, I think you're right, uh, but it was at that time, and I think that fueled a whole lot of that as well. That you could be an artist and then be an artist, uh, get a degree, be an art teacher. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Jenny Watson was lecturing uh, at uh, CIT, that's where Nick met her and stuff like that. That's how we all met those other guys, and they were coming to our gigs, but they were also being internationally recognised artists at the same time um, and then continued on to be so. But I think the, the, um, nowadays you've got less funding around education, less opportunity for people to pursue uh, those kind of endeavours. And, you know, what if so, uh, what great good you could bring to society by, you know, bringing more art and music and literature and culture to people. And if you did it between the ages of 18 and you know, 26, and then you went, oh, well, you know, I'm sick of starving in my garret, I'm going to go get a job in advertising or whatever, um, then that's that's a decision you could kind of make then. But now you kind of can't make that decision now. You have to wait until you've 40, got rid of your kids, paid off your house, and, you know, and then you go, oh, now I'll be an artist. You know, but I think you'll have a different attitude towards your your, your practice and stuff when you're that age than when you've got all that passion and, and all that, that that kind of excitement about you know being 18 or 19 or 20 and first getting your hands on to whatever it is you're getting your hands on to good question um i'd just like to add to that i'm just having gone to art school here in melbourne and to pick up on to say yes to what you're saying there's a feature about australia where at art school, no matter what, um, we don't have classes as such in Australia, but working class people would go to art school. It was a very common thing. It wasn't, if you were perhaps coming from a wealthy family, you were more likely not to go to art school for some strange reason, I don't know. But the thing about this is that comparatively, to Europe and America, it's only if you were very wealthy that you would end up becoming an artist <laughs> or you'd be supported to study art. And it wasn't rejected because it was a sort of a cultural exception. You know, people accepted culture there. Whereas in Australia, there wasn't such culture wasn't really sort of supported. So it was mostly people who didn't think Anyway, just in support of that and that in hearing how hard... I know that you're saying that a part of youth is blissful because you don't realise the risks you're taking in, in sort of just devoting yourself so day and night to this type of activity. And, but it, it just sort of makes me annoyed because that, is, that type of devotion is a lot of work, you know. It's a lot of full-time activity and you're immersed in it. And it just really annoys me when the politicians came out and started calling artists elitists and culture elitism, when in Australia it was very particular, it was far from elitism. And it's 
practic yeah for all the you know now you have to pay to go to art school and things i think i think the um oh if we're going to get into class wars here, um, I think that, yeah, like the, prior to um, the opening up of the education system, uh, you, uh, you know, under the, the Whitlam government, uh, yeah, the universities were only for the wealthy and the elites and you went to university only to do law and medicine and things like that. And you might be at art school, but you might be doing, you know, graphic arts or you might be doing ticket writing or you might be doing sign writing or you might be doing, you know, one of these things that was more a trade-based kind of situation. Um, but, yeah, but wasn't that just a wonderful, amazing thing that everyone could all of a sudden go to university as long as they had the marks, not the money, the marks, you know? I mean, that was the thing. And so then all of a sudden now you've got this fantastic situation, working class people getting an education. Well, let me tell you, you know, the guys up at the Melbourne Club don't want the working class getting an education. You know, that's that, and that's that's... <laughs> Sorry, I know we're so close to an election and my blood is boiling, but uh, <laughs> it's just like, really, trust me, you, you won't get any university funding out of uh, the current, you know, pack of animals. But anyway, uh, sorry, <laughs> I think I'm in pretty safe company here. You know, a lot of a lot of the things, um, you know, about meeting other musicians through St Kilda, becoming immersed in that culture of being able to do your own you know, music or art or, you know, it, it just mirrors what most of the artists, other artists have said about um, just sort of being free to uh, to express what mm. you want, you know, in sort of like a melting pot area of so many different styles where everything seems to be accepted. And it just sort of sounds like it was such a wonderful time to... I, I think also there's a funny thing. I've got a friend who says... Um, you know, Melbourne's like a European city and Sydney's like an American city kind of thing. And one one experience that came to me when I first went to Berlin and I sort of went, oh, yeah, Melbourne, Berlin, I kind of get it. Because in Berlin, there's actually no – we would go play a show and after a show we'd end up like in a, a cafe, you know, an outdoor kind of place where you can drink and eat. And – the other people there were also other musicians. But no, it's the guy who's just played violin at the ballet. It's the saxophone player who just played at the jazz show. And then the guy over there is a painter. He's a poet. You know, and this guy's a taxidermist or whatever. You know, and, but everybody was cool with each other and everybody was – and no one – the classical musician was just as interested in what we were doing with our stuff. He wasn't going, oh, that's a whole lot of noise. So everyone was open to stuff. And that's – I wouldn't say it was exactly like that, but it was kind of like that. And um, that was a good thing. I mean, you know, going back to you talking about the 60s scene, which is much more based around the city and things like that, the thing that does happen, you get generational. Like, you know, um, you know I was fortunate to be managed by a guy uh, who had been in bands in the 60s, Keith Glass, who had Missing Link Records. He was in a band called Camp Act and the 18th Century Quartet. He was also the first man to appear naked on stage in Australia in the lead role of hair. But there you go. It's like, it's a, but it's the thing. It's, you know, everyone helps everybody down the line. If, you're in, if, you're, if you get stuck in the business, uh, you're probably going to be in it for life. You know, I'm still you know, playing and I'm uh, recording and producing a band at the moment and they're all 18. The oldest guy's 19. You know, it's like, you know, like he's the old guy, you know, so, and it's great. It's great. They got energy and stuff like that. So it's still out there, but, uh, 
but yeah, there there is this kind of thing about the the, the family kind of vibe around this area. Then, yeah, that seemed to come up a lot. So, yeah, that's probably the biggest one, I think. Yeah, I, so. I, I, I'd like to thank uh, the society for asking me along because it's been a great, like, it's been a really enjoyable process for me as well. And um, it does, you know, bring back a, a lot of memories and things like that. But, um, and, and also just like makes you sort of get this kind of warm glow about, you know, you still, it's still nice to walk around St Kilda. I still like, you know, wandering around these streets because they're, they're full of so many uh, memories from those times, you know. So, yeah, it's been yeah. beautiful. Thanks. I think that's it. Thank you all for coming and for your questions. Oh, so wonderful. And thank you, Phil. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you. podcast was recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to thank the St Kilda Historical Society and its committee for the opportunity to carry out this project and for all their support along the way. The Historical Society does a lot of work throughout the year to preserve the history of our local area and make it accessible for all. Members pay $20 a year to join and receive three newsletters per year full of information and great stories. They have events throughout the year, including local history walks, talks and presentation of new research. See their website, stkildahistory.org.au, for more information. Our local council, the City of Port Phillip, does so much to support the magnificent arts here in St Kilda. A big thank you to the council for their funding in this podcast series as part of their Cultural Development Fund. Thank you for seeing the value of this project and, in particular, thank you to Sharon Dawson for your guidance along the way. We look forward to seeing the other projects from this round of funding come to fruition as well. Sending out a big thank you to the animals for their assistance with the promotional side of this project. The animals are a one-stop shop for advertising, brand building and idea generation and have collaborated with many companies both here in Melbourne and around Australia. See their website, theanimals.com.au, for more. The Unplugged in St Kilda podcast was recorded at Big Ears Audio, 97 Wellington Street, St Kilda. I'd like to take a moment to thank Tony, Adrian, Laz and their team for doing such a brilliant job recording, editing and producing the series and for their professional advice along the way. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my wonderful volunteers who helped me put this series together, all the artists who gave their time for interviews and to you, the listener, for joining me. I've had a great time creating this project and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.